Welcome to the Close Knit Podcast, a podcast that aims to hold space for conversation to be had about the ways we use fiber to process life and world events. You're listening to episode 46 of the Close Knit Podcast, and this week I spoke to Sarah Trail of the Social Justice Sewing Academy. Sarah is incredible a complete powerhouse of passion and ambition. She's been sewing since age four, making quilts under her grandmother's direction, and teaching quilt making from the age of 12. Just let that sink in for a moment. Teaching sewing classes, she started to notice how monochromatic her students were, and how there were many issues of access and affordability that existed and perpetuated this student makeup. She started SJSA as a response to this, a way to teach quilting and social justice topics through textiles for free to youth. Sarah talks me through the nuts and bolts of how the organization operates and how it's grown over the last few years. We discuss the incredible things that happen both in the classroom with the students she works with and in quilt exhibits like QuiltCon, which she recently attended in Nashville. I just constantly found myself remarking at how deeply inspired I am by Sarah and her commitment to this work on a personal and professional level. Running this not-for-profit on the weekends in addition to working with incarcerated adults to earn their high school diplomas during the week. Sarah schooled me in this episode, and it was awesome. I'm really excited for you all to listen to Sarah and the SJSA's incredible story. And don't forget to check out the show notes and her Instagram, because seeing these quilts, seeing this work, is what really makes it hit home, I think. Listen on for our whole chat. Thanks so much for tuning in. Ani of Close Knit, and I'm here with Sarah of the Social Justice Sewing Academy. Hey. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? Doing well. Excited to be featured. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here. Um, So you, okay, can you tell me where you are right now? <laughs> I am in a community center because um, I left custody from teaching um, incarcerated adults to get their high school diploma. Amazing. Okay. Wow. Okay. There's like so, we have so much to talk about, but I'm going to start with talking about kind of your personal history with fiber art and kind of how it is that you got into quilting and sewing. Can you talk me through that? Absolutely. So my, I have a grandma who sews profusely and she was my babysitter um, as my mom is a helicopter over protective parent. But um, my grandma taught me how to sew on a treadle machine. And so when she would make quilts, I would always get um, all her scraps and I'd piece together mini quilts from her scraps. So from the age of four to maybe like seven, I'd piece at home with my grandma. But by the time mm-hmm. I was seven, I was proficient in doing a quarter inch seam following, you know, industry standards and what is how to quote unquote quilt. So from the age yeah. of like seven to about maybe 11, my mom enrolled me in adult level sewing classes um, where I learned how to make a wedding ring quilt, how to do paper piecing, how to do foundational, you know, like basically a lot of, a lot of skills. That's amazing. So you're like seven years old doing all this stuff. Yeah. I was the only <laughs> child and I didn't have anyone to play with. So sewing was like, you know, my hobby. 
Yeah. Okay. So then did you continue to sew and quilt into like young adulthood? Yeah. So in middle school, um, I wrote a book on how to sew with C&T Publishing Mm -hmm. called Sew with Sarah. And then they offered me the opportunity to be featured in a DVD called Cool Stuff to Sew with Sarah. So after the book and DVD, um, I was offered a pattern line with simplicity. So I have like 15 fabric patterns. You know, it's like you buy the pattern, you pull it out of the Joanne's drawer, and then you make... You know, an apron, a prom dress, a tote bag. You make all of it. Then after the simplicity pattern line, I did a fabric line with Fabricool. So I have two collections of fabric. And so by the time of 13, I had a fabric, book, and pattern collection. So after that, um, I kind of was – Joanne's was sponsoring me to travel around and teach kids how to sew because I was really – I wanted to teach young people how to sew. And you sewing is, you know, an entrepreneurial – and um, but I realized that like a lot of my classes are monochromatic with privileged white kids being the only ones afforded access to learning how to sew. Um, and that was often mm-hmm. because my sewing classes were expensive. It was like one hundred and fifty dollars yeah. for a four day, you know, all day Saturday at Joanne's or whatever. So it's like after talking right. to my parents, my mom was like, Sarah, sewing is really expensive. You just don't necessarily understand it because me and your dad have always sacrificed for you to afford this. But it's like after a while that really caused me to reflect on my privilege, you know, coming from a two parent background with two educated parents. And so I realized I wanted to make sewing free. And that wasn't necessarily aligned with, you know, the sponsors. And I realized how capitalistic the sewing industry was. So. Um, when I got to UC Berkeley after I graduated, I created a free summer sewing program called the Social Justice Sewing Academy where I allowed kids to create, you know, activist art quilts for free by using donated fabrics, embroidery floss, and then walk them through the A through Z process in creating your own quilt, but then quilting and finishing and binding and embellishing and then having an exhibit at the end of the, the summer program where you can sit by your quilt and talk about it. So the kids, it was like 20 kids and we paired up and they each made a quilt on like Oscar Grant being choked out you know, for selling cigarettes mm. and police brutality and mass incarceration and on women. One girl made a quilt and it was after that Stanford swimmer had just been like kind of let off the hook for quote unquote raping that drunk girl. And their quote was like, am I asking for it because I'm wearing a short skirt? If it's too short, you call me, you know, a slut. If it's too long, you keep calling me a prude. Nothing I wear, you know. So it was just really allowing kids to, you know, I guess reflect on their lived experiences and in what, you know, intersection does that relate to a social justice issue and then really just highlight it through textile. Right. That, I mean, gosh, so you were doing all of this when you were like a teenager. This all started when you were 13. Yes. But as she said, it didn't really wild. start till after Berkeley. But yeah, I was right. sewing. I was so, I've been teaching kids how to sew for like a decade, but it was always right. teaching kids how to make a tote bag, teaching kids how to make a prom dress, PJ pants, pillows, you know, backpacks. Like I was just teaching sewing because I loved sewing, but it wasn't really till the real catalyst, I think, in my socio-political development was when Trayvon Martin was murdered. And that was like the moment where it's like, I'm spending hundreds of hours to make this double wedding ring quilt or make someone, you know, their custom wedding dress while kids my age that look like me are getting killed unfairly in America. So it was a moment of like my sewing life was my for fun. And then my activist life was what I was doing at college. And that was really the moment where I made a quilt featuring Trayvon Martin's face. And I bridged it and I was like, I can't spend my free time sewing when the sewing community isn't doing anything to help advance and just help protect, advance, make aware, inform the greater American society of all these injustices that are happening, particularly in the communities of color. Right. It's so interesting. I feel like this is something I'm hearing a lot from people when they're kind of realizing that they're, they maybe use a part of their textile practice to like process those experiences personally, but it's not overt, right? Like they kind of have this. You can do it as therapy for yourself, but it's one thing to explicitly put Trayvon's face on a quilt. 
But, right, but while the right. trauma is happening in the black community, like, okay, this just happened. I'm sad. I'm going to go make a quilt. Why? Because I enjoy quilting. It's therapeutic. Mm-hmm. It's relaxing. But my quilt isn't going to reflect how I'm feeling. My quilt's going to be this beautiful piece of, you know, traditional quilt. But it was really when I stopped using patterns and I started quilting for self-expression on issues that I cared about. But that was when, you know, I had to open it up to like, it's not about making patterns. It's not about selling things. It's not about a for-profit model. It's really about using textile, you know, expression to just share youth voice. Right. So then that's how you decided. So can you walk me through like at Berkeley, you're, you're doing all of this and then you conceptualize a social justice sewing academy as it kind of now is or, or, you know, yeah, yeah. will so, grow to so be. So Trayvon got killed. I made the quilt. Um, and it's like, here, you, I can show you a photo, but this is the quilt. Oh, yeah. And so it's really oh just Trayvon's gosh. face that's like eight feet long. And then I was entering it in quilt shows. And like, I wanted to, you know, still use my network of sewing to say, hey, guys, I understand that, you know, double wedding rings are fun. I understand that foundational sewing star pieces are cool, too. But Trayvon just got killed. The sewing community wasn't really talking about it. And everyone denied mm. it. Like, the quilt couldn't mm. get seen anywhere. So it was kind of like, I. this was the moment once I made a political art quilt that, like, and it wasn't even about politics. It was really about memorializing a black boy who was killed for this color of his skin in a racist area right. um but it was really like every no one wanted to show the quilt no one wanted to talk about it you know like my, my mm-hmm. workshops at joanne's i couldn't bring the quilt so i was really realizing the sewing world kind of wanted to be like like an ostrich in, with their head in the sand kind of of like we're gonna sew buy a pattern make the quilt enjoy the process and that's cool yeah. if you have the privilege to do that but right. with with like the trauma impacting my communities and, and my friends and like everyone in my friend social group, regardless of school, we're still working on school. We're still doing our work study jobs. But Trayvon just got killed. So we're rallying because a threat to anyone is a threat to all of us. And so it was a sense mm-hmm. of collective action that I was feeling in my black community. And the sewing community wasn't reflecting the same, I guess, priorities as I was mm-hmm. in my in my college activist and just you know, just young person life. So it was really like, as much as I loved the sewing community, to sit in this eight-hour Saturday workshop and no one's talking about the fact that this kid just got gunned down for nothing, it wasn't sitting well internally. Right, right, totally. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it's scary the way that we can compartmentalize that was it It was like a binary it was like the sewing world the people in sewing classes but honestly i got kicked out of a lot of sewing classes in my local Mm. quilt shop i talked too much you know and then women would come there they see i'm in there after an hour with me there they tell them i want a refund i don't want to be in this class this kid talks too much and it's like they wanted no grandkids they wanted no politics they wanted a safe space to learn the technique and you know being 13 Mm. 12 I mean, I obviously was probably super annoying, but at the end of the day, I was there to learn the technique too. I just was talking about things that were relevant. And it's like I was the grand, you know, child in the class in which they were paying to get away from. Right, right, right. Well, and it's, I think that that's what's important in this too, is like, you didn't see it happening, so you made it. I made the space for it. And it's like, I wasn't, like, Quilt Trayvon wasn't getting accepted into quilt classes or in quilt shows. So it's okay. I brought Mm. it to protests. I showed it at my church. I let other kids make quilts. Mm. It's like, if it it wasn't accepted there, that's fine. I'm not going to fight to fit into your world. I'll create my own space. Right, right. And I think that that's important. I think, um, I wanted to know about how you kind of then put the nuts and bolts together of like making this into an organization of like, you talked about getting donations for fabrics. Like, how did you kind of make so that So because all I had a simplicity pattern collection, fabric quilt collection, um, and I'd written a book with CNT, I was able to really reach out to a lot of people who had, spo- I was sponsored by Bernina as a 12 year old. And again, if uh-huh. I look back on that, what kind of kid can afford a Bernina at 12? Kids totally. who have grandparents and parents supporting them through their sewing experience. And so yeah. 
So it's like, I, I kind of realized like now looking back, I was really the epitome of privilege teaching sewing to kids. And that was really kind of what I wanted to dismantle, which is why, again, mm. the sponsors that I used to have when writing books don't sponsor SGSA. It's really community grassroots quilters donate. So the first thing is I talked to a bunch of quilters and at first, you know, quilters are like, yeah, you know, we'll send you a bit of fabric. So I got a bit of fabric. And then a lot of people, the question kept coming up. You need to have a tax ID so I can write this off. I don't mind donating, but you need to be a nonprofit so I can claim this for my taxes. So then I realized people would donate right. if we were a nonprofit so they could claim that write off, which I completely understood. So I, I YouTubed, I figured out how to get a nonprofit, got applied for EIN, was awarded that, applied for nonprofit, thousands of dollars of expenses. Luckily, you know, I had my parents really financially supporting me. So I got the nonprofit status. Then more donations of fabric were coming in. Um, then after that, it's like, hey, we need sewing machines to run this summer program. We need rotary cutters. We need mats. We need seam rippers. We need interfacing. Right. We need basting. It was really a lot. And so I've been a lot afford, like able to supplement a lot with my personal job. But then I started applying for small grants, like, you know, like a mm. like ebhq awarded us a grant um this organization called singing for change gave us a grant uc berkeley gave me a startup grant for a program for any graduating senior to do so that was really the catalyst oh, um that initial yeah. grant and so after that really i was like but after the summer program we gave all the sewing machines that the grant afforded us to buy to the kids who completed the program because at the end of the day mm -hmm. if we don't give them the materials and supplies to be able to sew and create quilts they'll never be able to afford it Right. And like sewing machines just in general, like I can't think of a model except for maybe the one from like Ikea that's under a hundred dollars. Right. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I guess I don't have a ton of quilting experience, but my like thought process around this is that you, you could kind of hand piece quilts, you but could, it would just be such be a tedious, labor intensive. That kids yeah. would never want to buy in. They don't right, mind the right. applique, like the raw edge applique technique is really the primarily sewing model or technique that SGSA uses. And it's because there's no rules. No one's telling them, right. you know, quarter inch seams, you have to follow this. Um, no one's telling them any of that. Gosh. Okay. There's just like so much. It's amazing. So when, so how long ago was it that like that initial grant after you graduated? 2016. So I got it. Right. Okay. The fall of 2016. I did the summer yeah. program and then I went straight to um, Massachusetts to get my master's at Harvard. And then when I was at Harvard, I came up with a workshop model because I, I was like, I still wanted to, you know, continue programming. So it's, it's two models. So it's like our summer program can have six weeks, the same kids, Monday through Friday, everyone create their own quilt start to finish. And then our workshop model is mm -hmm. we go into a high school. Um, we have a few hours with the kids. We have a discussion. We do a social justice block design. They create the block, but they don't get to hand and border the block unless the teacher is giving us, you know, four or five days to finish it. Right. Okay. So you have the like summer program and then also this like a day long or however long you get. Exactly. Yeah, okay. And so with okay, that day long cool. or that shorter workshop, that's where our embroidery volunteers come in because at the end of the day, having a block hand embroidered is a labor of love. It's time intensive. Mm -hmm. and, and more than that, it's a it's a learning and like a talking point for the embroidery volunteer. So it's like if I'm sit, making a block on Khalif Browder and I ship it to, you know, some woman in Idaho to embroider, she doesn't know who Khalif Browder is. She's going to research, learn. She might post it on social media. It'll give her a platform to share, you know, about this injustice, what happened to him, what the problem was. And even if she brings it to a sewing circle, most people are, you know, making flying geese or, you know, raw edge appliquing beautiful like you know peaceful things it's kind of it's like an interesting dichotomy of putting uncomfortable things on the comforting cloth of fabric yes that's i think like this is what i've been so interested in hearing about is in particular uh the relationship that you have with the embroidery volunteers and then the relationship 
between viewer and quilt. So can you talk me through the embroidery volunteer relationship and how that forms and what that's like? Yes. So they sign up via usually people on Instagram. So if someone gets a block, they'll post it. Their friends will say, oh, what are you doing? I'm volunteer sewing for SGSA. They'll tag us. Then her three, four friends will sign up. So then everyone will be getting blocks. The blocks range and they're all 15 inch, you know, glued down fabric. And it can take, I mean, one woman embroidered so many beads on the block. She said it took her about 40 hours. Because she went over the top with embellishment, which is absolutely welcomed, but it's obviously not required. Um, but really, <laughs> you know, they get a block, they, they embroider it. And so that first step involves tacking everything that the kid has cut and glued, tacking it down, then adding things. Sometimes the kids will say, can you add a quote? Can you add hair? Can you add a face? Can you make this look like grass? Because, you know, all the fabrics donated, they might get a lime green, but they want the grass to be darker green. So in the note to the embroiderer, can you add some darker green to make this really look like grass? You know, things like that. But really the embroidery mm-hmm. volunteer gets an opportunity to talk about the issue, to share what the youth said, because we can oftentimes send the youth youth artist statement to the embroidery volunteer with the block so hey my name Mm. is you know Joaquin I made this block on immigration and DACA and I'm doing this because I'm a DACA student and this dreamers act you know like they'll they'll write their own statement they'll give them the block and then the embroidery volunteer might add you know class of 2020 because they saw that the you know the kids in eighth grade like they might just add you know their own embellishing touches that really just give context to who's doing it why they're doing it et cetera et cetera yeah and you said that like these embroidery volunteers are kind of all over all the over. US. Wow. So it's like That's a so lot of cool. issues that happen in Chicago aren't really leaving the Illinois tri-state area. However, when it goes to Utah and Arkansas to this other person's, you know, they're not dealing with the same issues because they might live in a, you know, predominantly affluent or just an, ish- an area that's not dealing with that. It just is amazing to me the way that textiles touch so many people. And it's so true of like every form of textiles that we interface with whether we know it or not just in terms of like clothing production right and like how many different hands they have to go through exactly the person who makes it the person like the sweatshop it could be ethical or unethical label like there's so much and i think i think working with as you say the medium of fabric like if i if i would have a different model like painting some kids may never have used paint ever so they might not be comfortable with using that medium to express themselves but fabric we're all wearing it i mean as soon as a baby's born Mm. the first thing they're wrapped in is fabric like textiles mm. is a really comforting medium that most people don't feel as hesitant to start exploring just because it's cutting fabric with scissors. Yeah. And how have you found that process of like teaching with teaching children and teaching youth in this way? Like with- they always have fun. It's always, uh, you know, there's a few kids that are oftentimes hesitant, but after, you know, they see their peers and at the end of the day, because it's fabric, a kid might have a design, but they're not good at cutting out letters. They can ask their neighbor. You know, the girl next to him might be a prolific scrapbooker with her mom and she might be able to say, hey, I can help you. And the cool thing is it's still his block, but it's easy to get help when it comes to textiles. Because if you need help cutting out a heart and I help you cut out the heart, I just handed you the heart. You're going to place the heart. You might recut the heart. But at the end of the day, it's still your block and ownership. But a lot of people can help. And it's like at the end of the day, if I cut out a heart and you don't like my heart, guess what? Don't glue it down. Yeah. It's still, it's like, it's, it's, you still have a hundred percent agency over the design and the look and the aesthetic of what you do, even if you get as much help as you may, you know, request, want, or, you know, need. Right. So y- you go to schools, you have people making, these students are making each of their blocks. These embroiderers, these um, volunteers are like, embroidering then they mail the block back to us and then i or another bay area volunteer will border all the well first we'll fuse the block with the interfacing so it becomes a little bit heavier weight just because sometimes the embroidery can warp the block 
We'll square it up. Mm. We'll border the block, every block, you know, all 20 blocks will get bordered in like maybe a half inch black border. Then we'll piece all 20 blocks into one community quilt. Then we have another volunteer mm. named Nancy Williams who long arms absolutely everything. And not only does she long arm her, she binds them, adds a sleeve and a label. Dang. Yeah, so Nancy, Nancy's like the LeBron on our team. If I had to, <laughs> I had to go down position, she's our Steph Nancy. Curry. She's it. Because it's like, you know, everyone else does one step. She does like all four, all wrap up. Yeah, wow. That's great. <laughs> That's amazing. So you have these finished quilt pieces. Yes. And then and then we give next? it back to the school. So the school that made it gets to obviously right. do a reveal, show the kids who made it. After that, whether they want to keep it for a month or so, then they give it back to us and we just get it seen in exhibits. We apply for quilt shows. And by doing that, you know, we foot the entry bill or we'll email, say we're a nonprofit. Can you waive some of the entry fees, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. We just get them seen in museums and local organizations, community centers, um, QuiltCon, you know, World Quilt in Tampa, PIQF. Right. So you just came back from QuiltCon, right? Yes. Okay. Can you tell me about that experience? Yeah. So at QuiltCon, we were fortunate enough to have 15 quilts featured. Um, and it was a huge, you know, the Modern Quilt Guild, a lot of the Modern Quilt Guild members are our embroidery volunteers just because that's a, you know, particular kind of contemporary demographic of quilters. So a lot of mm-hmm. the volunteers, I had at least three, four women say, my block's there. And I'm just like, that's so cool. And there are a lot of quilts that didn't get accepted, but, um, but, you know, the ones that were there were featured. And so a lot of the embroidery volunteers were there. We got a lot of new signups to become embroidery volunteers just because of the exposure that was there. Um, Ulfa, the people who make the rotary cutter and rulers, they donated a lot. Misty Fuse. Okay. You know, we had some people that sponsor us because they've seen it. Because at the end of the day, mm. the quilt industry and, like, you know, free donations and sponsorships are really what can – facilitate and help us continue the free programming for kids so being seen in these quilt shows is really where we get our volunteer base to finish the quilts and oftentimes get sponsorships like interfacing basting glue rotaries cutting mats like those things are all things we really need so being in those quilt shows are really you know what kind of keep the program like the 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 like the business product side of it running but then showing in museums and contemporary you know art centers and just or local organizations are really where we give kids a platform to speak have panels talk about the issues talk about the change they want to see in their communities so it's two ply terms in terms of showing we show at quote right, shows okay. to get support we show in community centers to um you know let the kids have a platform to speak and then when people come to community centers and museums for exhibits they're there to listen to the kids and they're there to really read and learn as opposed to quilt con mm-hmm. people are there to admire the quilts look at the art you know and keep it pushing right so i'm super interested in what responses are like when you show at places like QuiltCon? I had a volunteer who came in from the UK and really interested in quilting and activism um, who recorded interviews with people that I'd love to send with you because they're low-key anonymous. Yeah. And she asked questions of, what did you think? Um, a few people, you know, didn't like the quilts and kind of berated me for letting kids, quote-unquote, brainwashing them or teaching them you know political indoctrination and i really just asked the question of if our prompts are create whatever you want and all we're doing is providing fabric scissors and glue these are kids lived experiences and it might not be yours or from your community but in the areas that we do baltimore chicago gang violence drugs undocumented mm-hmm. immigration you know threats of having your family members deported like these are real real feelings and it's not yep. for you to invalidate these kids' truths. Art is for telling the truth. Truth needs to be told. These are youth's truth. Whether you agree or disagree, it's their truth. Right, right. 
Yeah. But on the whole, I guess we were talking before a little bit about um, you feel like, or it sounded like from QuoteCon, there was a pretty overwhelmingly positive response. Yes. QuoteCon, I would definitely say at least 90% really enjoyed. Um, a few, That's like awesome. there's one quote, Brian made a beautiful quote and a girl saw his quote, just started crying. It's nooses hanging on an American flag with mm. like dead bodies. So some of it, you know, and some people would just say, this is disturbing. It doesn't belong in quotes. If it doesn't belong in quotes. Where do you think it belongs? Like, who mm-hmm. are you the quilt police? Like, to what media? Like, if quilting and sewing is an art form, are you going to tell right. Michelangelo, don't make, you know, a, a naked thing of, you know, David? Like, are, it's like mm-hmm. a, a good analogy that, you know, I heard is, um, like, if you go, if no one likes okra, I don't like okra. I don't even like asparagus, but I'll never go to a grocery store and tell someone to stop selling it. So for the people who tell us, just say, or like me, your volunteers, you know, you shouldn't let these kids make this. It's like, there's a lot of quotes here. There's a lot of messages. There's a lot of, you know, different styles for you to want to police, you know, what youth are saying just because you do or might not agree with it. You know, it's pretty problematic and shows a sense of privilege you coming for even thinking you have the audacity to tell us to not let kids do it. Yeah, totally. And just that, like, I think there is sometimes this hesitation with craft that it's not, quote, art. I guess the Mm -hmm. audience can't see that I'm like doing a lot of air quotes. Um, And I feel like maybe as a result, like, it has been possible for artists to like push boundaries of social change and push um, the sorts of ways that they express ideas and especially like uncomfortable things that you don't want to have to confront and sit with. But in the craft community, it's a little bit, maybe we've been more insulated from having to actually see it. I don't know. No, I think, I think, I think that's really, I think the craft and sewing community is really about, like, if you look at, like, you know, what's just, like, are the seams perfect? Does the colors match? Is it beautiful? And it's like, things can be beautiful, but they can also cause you to think. Things can be beautiful and also make you feel uncomfortable. Things can be beautiful and often cause you to reckon with your privilege or understand from where I sit, you know, this might not, like, people say, well, this doesn't happen in my neighborhood. That's a, that's a blessing. You're fortunate for right. it not to be happening. But in Oakland, sex trafficking is real. Prostitution is real. And these kids walking mm-hmm. to these high schools can see it. Like, I live mm-hmm. in the Bay Area. I see homelessness all the time. I see sex trafficking. I mean, not verbatim, but it's like I see kids on the street, you know, on international at 1 and 2 a.m. And it's like, what are young women doing? On, like, prost- like, there's so many issues. It's like you. It's like yeah. putting yourself in a bubble doesn't make the issues any less real. Right. And you're just kind of... You're living in this place of being able to insulate yourself from it. So it's out of sight, out of mind. I don't have to think about it. That's I don't it. I have to see it. That's it. And if you keep it out of my quote shows, I never have to think about it. That's it. And, and whether you want to think about it or not, you can respect the art and respect the fact that at the end of the day, SGSA is causing hundreds of kids to get hands-on experience to textile workshops, which is a lot yeah. more than many quilt guilds could say. Gosh, it's so cool. I just really admire what it is that you're doing and especially just this like incredible gumption that you clearly have had since you were like a child like you've clearly just been passionate and driven to do this and it sounds like you do you like work full-time in addition to SJSA. yeah so my weekends right? my weekends go to SJSA. Damn. <laughs> okay so it, during the week you're working with incarcerated folks yeah incarcerated adults men and women getting their high school diploma and i teach every subject from algebra to geometry to 
American lit. And so it's like, but the cool thing is because I have such a restorative justice, social justice, critical lens of education, I'm really not using this education. It's not about getting the diploma and having the piece of paper. It's really about, you know, how can you push? How can you understand your lived reality? Let's read, you know, Audre Lorde, Tony Morrison, James Baldwin. Like, let's really go deep and, you know, what, what institutional, you know, structures and racism and, and oppression, like what's upheld this? It's like, you guys want to talk about mm-hmm. gentrification. Let's go back to redlining. Let's go back to white mm-hmm. flight. Let's go back to, you know, people moving to the suburbs and the inner city leaving it you know and and taking all the resources from it then let's go back to people wanting to reclaim the inner city to be closer to their jobs it's like let's let's really go through the history and like what's caused this and you know quote-unquote ghettos and like what's what's really like what is the real definition of a ghetto and you know how did it come and what Mm -hmm. policies were there and what presidents pushed that the war on drugs and you know like we really like to go deep it's like we do history but i really because at the end of the day they're in jail like they're not necessarily you know they're not They've already had an opportunity to be in high school. Many of them expelled. Many of them just didn't make it. Many of them got pregnant eighth, ninth, tenth grade, never went back. So it's really using this education as a liberatory tool of empowerment, not necessarily just doing homework to get a, get the high school diplomas. Right. It's cool to be able to have this this additional lens of like, hey, there's a lot of important stuff that did not get covered in your in, in your, your high school and school that's, textbooks. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Mo- moving away yeah, from this Eurocentric that. view of, you know, just American history, like even in a typical history book, when it comes to African-American history, um, like even in college, I went to UC Berkeley, African-American history is an elective. American history is still the required core course. Like, why is my history right. always an elective? But yours, right. you know, Eurocentric history is required. Right. Like, that's history, world history, American right. history. But, like, even when it comes to even the intersection of black history in American history, why does it always start at slavery? Like, what happened mm-hmm. pre-slavery? Why does black mm-hmm. people get introduced in the history book, you know, with Sojourner Truth? Like, you start with oppression. What happened pre-oppression? And even the mm-hmm. rhetoric around it, like, textbooks in in you know texas said they were indentured servants slavery is not indentured servitude the rhetoric that you use matters totally yeah and Django, you, find- you know wasn't accurate at all like we weren't really kill- like that mind you it's amazing you know cinematography but like it didn't like they're really like kids sometimes will have a warped view of things just because right. of the lack of resources or the lack of knowledge or the lack of you know even books like a question i always ask you know the students and it's like how many books did you guys ever have in your home less than five to grow Mm -hmm. up with less than five books you know that's that's really you know unfortunate and it's like i'll I'll even go back to you know the one thing that you know slaves weren't allowed to do learn how to read or write why is Mm -hmm. that why would they Mm -hmm. take away your ability to read or write why because Mm -hmm. knowledge is power and you guys really need to understand that if this was denied for us for so many years this should be one thing that we should all exercise our our right to you know learn to read and write well yeah yeah do you feel like have you noticed when you're in like a youth classroom, do you feel like the way that they're learning things is any better than like we were when we were children or no, just still not really. I think there's been a few schools that are really liberatory and like their critical sense. And like we've done like some social justice high schools have asked us to come. The kids were woke to a level that, you know, I I wish my high school would have taught. I went to a private Christian school where it was, you know, Mm. Jesus created everything. Our science class, everything had that really Eurocentric Christianity, um, even mm. the pictures of Jesus, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes, even though the Bible mm. talks about, you know, woolly sheep hair and like, you know, as much as I 
yeah, it's just, it's just really interesting to understand, you know, the way like the ideology of your school has so much on your personal development as well as your socio-political development. Never in my high school was I taught about grassroots organizing or Ida B. Wells or Frida Kahlo mm-hmm. or just any, you know, of the women that had really done stuff. When it comes to social justice, Black History Month, they might show some Martin Luther King, might show some Reverend Jesse Jackson, some Malcolm X, and then keep it pushing. Mm-hmm. Like, what about all the women that were the linchpins of the social justice movement? What about like, there, there's just so much that just goes instead not to say that hit that you know high school should teach everything but it's not even remotely inclusive like i can't right, think right. And, my, and i mean my parents paid for my christian high school education we never once read from an indigenous author why did mm. that take till i got to college mm. how did you because it sounds like you were you were aware of it like you had an awareness of this even at the age where you were like how do you think you my had parents were right, really okay. like like um and like my friends growing like in the moment everyone used to think i was just so i had a terrible childhood but my parents would make me read a book a week and if i didn't write a book report by that friday i wouldn't be able to do anything that weekend in addition to all my homework so right, okay. i was reading from like i'd say maybe third grade to like 11th grade they stopped it like my senior year because i was really getting busy and applying to colleges junior senior year, i had to stop but at, like i read 52 books a year in addition to all wow. the school books because they required a book and i'd get to pick the books out so i'd pick out you know right. like they might say it has to be an autobiography this week or it has to be a black author this week or it has to be a latinx right. author this week so i'd get like parameters but i always have the agency to pick my own book but i mean i wrote hundreds of book reports in addition yeah. to school and it's like to go oh to my gosh. friend's birthday party on Saturday, my book report had to be done by Friday. But therefore, right. when I got to UC Berkeley and I realized how many of my peers were so inadequately prepared for college, college, you know, no offense, it was a breeze for me. Not because I'm mm-hmm. super smart, but because my parents supplemented my education. Yeah, <laughs> I remember I went to Cal as well. And I remember feeling very underprepared. <laughs> and I think like even the valedictorians on my floor, they're at Cal yeah. and they're in college R1A. And I'm like, how are you in college writing? Like you were the valedictorian. They're like, Sarah, we didn't really have to write book reports. How are you in high right. school? And you, did, I mean, not book research papers, like participatory right. action. Like I, like it was just, it blew my mind. And mind you, I didn't really have a public school experience. So something I was really excited yeah. with starting us to say is the opportunity to go into public schools. Talk to the kids. Right. What do they learn? I've never been to public school. I went to private school yeah. my entire life. Yeah. Okay. And you work always in public schools? Yeah. So I should say almost always in public schools. Cool. Yeah. That's great. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, there's so many, so many ways that like our, our schooling system needs so much reform. Revamping. I think it really does. It's like everything. It's like, it's even, even the way that they give grading. Like if you're this old, you need to be in this grade, this old, like it's so banking model, like this banking model is like, it's never tailored. And it really, there's not a one size fits all for a student. And I think that we have this common core, you know, standard, even the way that they focus on testing. Like, I'm really Mm -hmm. blessed to be like the high school that I teach for is a charter school. It's a charter Mm -hmm. alternative school. But the teachers get the freedom because they're working with adults. If we want to tailor it, we can tailor it. And we don't have to necessarily have that same. Like, we're not focusing on ACT, SAT prep. These are adults. And at the end of the day, they all have records. So community college, it's even more unfortunate. Records make you ineligible for financial aid. Uh. So the amount of like they might want to go to college, but. Obviously, they don't have the resources to afford it. It's so unfair mm-hmm. that, you know, a felony or a record or a misdemeanor, you know, and even the amount of people that are in custody for things such as selling 10 pounds of weed. 
Mm-hmm. Like weed is legal now. Why are people still mm-hmm. locked up over weed charges? Smoking, right. driving while high, selling while high, dealing, distributing. Like there's so much reparations before legalization. Like we need to backdo and undo records. And unless you have, you know, money for expungement and lawyers and someone really advocating on your behalf, it's really unfortunate how many people fall through the cracks of these systems. Yeah, right, right. Gosh, there's so much that I have to learn about all of this. And it's, yeah, again, just constantly impressive. This conversation, I feel like I'm learning <laughs> a lot. And there's, um, there's, I was thinking about um, your, it sounds like you are a very busy person, like in terms of how much time you yes. spend doing these things. Do you quilt for your, like, do you make quilts? Do you have a textile practice? At this point, I take the kids' blocks and I turn them into quilts. And that's right, as okay. fun as making my own. Just because right, it's okay. like I'm taking all their ideas and like even in like the way that I choose the layout. Like for this one, her story. This mm-hmm. is a quote. And I did shadow boxes behind every woman. Mm. This one, I did like this one. I sewed this one. I sewed this one. We had a volunteer do this one. But this one, I mm-hmm. did them all cattywampus. This was a middle school group. And so it's like their blocks were larger. So I, I sewed them in offset. So at this point, I have a lot of fun with the designing of the community quilts. And I'm always mm-hmm. leading workshops for kids, which is like, although yeah. I might not be making my own, I'm helping everyone make their own. And seeing a kid from start to finish, A to Z, go from design to, you know, applique to machine quilting to basting to pinning to binding, it's, it's as as fun as making your own. Mm. Do you, I guess like something that's really alluring about textiles for me and fiber art is just that it, it feels, there's like a feeling inside my body that happens when I'm doing it. Yeah. Is that something that you could kind of miss if you're not like on the tools making quilts very much? Yeah, I definitely do. Like if I haven't done, like I at least do two to three workshops a month and oftentimes just do right. Saturdays in a library or do an after school program where I can leave custody a bit early and go, you know, facilitate an after school program in a high school. But it's so much fun. And it's like, I really think that feelings and mood get put into what the kids are making. It's like, yeah. I've, it's like workshop on in South Dakota on the Cheyenne River Reservation alcoholism um women being murdered like those were really that was a heavy workshop as opposed to going to a santa barbara you know maybe more fluent public school and it's about saving the whales and environmental you know pollution which matters just as much but it's just different like your proximity to the issues often change the mood and the tone of how you know deep quote-unquote the workshop can get that's so interesting and interest yeah i don't know that's i guess like i have this sense that we kind of I would have thought in that moment, like about making this hierarchy of like, which thing is more important or less important, you know, yep. <laughs> like, oh, saving the way I was like, well, it doesn't seem as important as like this person in front of me is being murdered, you know, like, correct. I, it's but it but I but appreciate your matters. lens on it. Right, right. Because it is inter- interdependent. It yeah. is. It's yeah. like, it's like, you know, you might make a block on environmentalism because your science unit just talked about lead poisoning. But this workshop in Richmond High School these people live in trailer parks 0.2 miles away from the factory. Kids are saying, my little brother has asthma. No one in my family has asthma. But since we moved out here, my little brother has asthma. And I'm just like, that's really unfortunate. Mm-hmm. It's like, let's do some research. How much, you know, what what is the factory doing? Can you petition? Can you get it moved? Can you, you know, have them use more sustainable products? Can you ask their missions to not, like, let's, let's think about some actions, some tangibles. But it's like, at the end of the day, there's never, I could say, this social justice issue is more important than others. I mean, obviously, people getting killed unfairly is, you know, that, that's like, that needs urgent attention. But, right. you know, everything matters. 
matters. And it's all very intersectional on how the issues, you know, can connect to each other. And it's like oftentimes I'm always learning stuff. Like I've I've looked mm-hmm. at, you know, like learning about Sonia Sotomayor and like women that necessarily weren't in my huge community. But like the kids are like, did you know about so-and-so? Or like just it, it's cool. It's really cool to yeah. like – I feel like I learn just as much as the kids learn. And it's like by doing all these workshops, it's like I'm gaining this whole collective of like – in Chicago, kids are concerned with this. In Atlanta, kids are concerned with this. In Boston, these are the pressing issues. In Oakland, in LA, it's like I'm just like mm-hmm. learning just this worldwide, you know, viewpoint and perspective and, and really getting to understand their lived experience. That's, yeah, that's amazing. And it's just so cool to have that be this like physical piece that then exists in the world. Exactly. And it's like a time capsule. Like when Kaepernick kneeled, kids were, we need to make a block on this because people are missing the point. It's not about, you know, quote unquote, Kaepernick kneeling or not respecting the flag. It's about saying he respects the flag too much for what America's doing right now. And and kids will be like, make America great again. What year is he talking about? Is it when Mm -hmm. we were segregated or is it when, Mm -hmm. you know, when we couldn't vote? Is it when like, so it's like these conversations, like I completely understand, make a block about it. So it's like an yeah. income inequality, having kids really think about income inequality, not in terms of ethnicity, but like in terms of how much more men are paid on dollar versus women. And then how mm-hmm. much Latinx women are, you know, and then black and then indigenous, like just something as simple as just really just analyzing. And I think what's a real cool part of SSA is often it's research informed art. They're not just making art based on their own ideas. If they have an issue. Get on your phone, look up some statistics, read some articles. You know, who's an expert on that? Look at Sean King's page, you know, go look at. Like really just learn and and reach out and find some statistics. You can't just come up with your own facts. You have to really be grounded in what's what's real. Why is that unfair? Mm-hmm. What do you want to do about it? Mm-hmm. Gosh, it's cool. Yeah, there's just so much in this. I guess I'd love to know um, what's kind of on the horizon for SJSA and like what you're excited about in the future. I'm excited about we got an exhibit. C- I guess confirmed for the National Quilt Museum, which is like, like that's like the Lamborghini quote unquote of, of quilt museums from what I've heard from the quilt world. So I'm really excited to have, awesome. you know, youth art featured in the National Quilt Museum. Um, yeah. Another thing is I'm really working this year on creating a curriculum. So it's like we can give it to other teachers and they can do SJSA program interdependent of, you know, me or another SJSA facilitator coming out there. So it can be something mm-hmm. where we can create models that can be more sustainable. Like here's the curriculum. Here's the handbook. We can supply you with the materials because if it's donated to us, we just need to get grant funding for shipping. We can ship free kits to other people who want to duplicate it. Like these are the questions. Right. These are the prompts. These are potential activities you can do with your kids to get them thinking of social justice in this, you know, design format. And then at the end of it, they can make the Raj blocks. They can always mail it back to us. We'll use our network to get the quote finished, made. But, you know, um, I really think sustainability, other things are just, you know, important quilt shows. I think it's really, it's like the subversiveness of using SGSA quilts to disrupt the quilting community and the standards and, you know, really the mm-hmm. white heteronormativity and exclusiveness of it. It's really nice when, you know, Wyndham Fabric will donate to us and, and really just get premium quilting cottons, you know, that kids can get access to that they really typically couldn't afford. Yeah, that's awesome. So it's exciting to hear that it might be something that can expand and that other people might be able to help out with too. Yeah, no, absolutely. So if people wanted to get involved with SGSA, what's the best way to do that? 
they can, if they want to do something specific, like book a workshop or anything, you can do that on the website. Say, hey, I'm a teacher here. I'd love to book a workshop. We'd love to, you know, see if we can make something happen. Or if not, at bare minimum, we can always do a FaceTime training with anyone and then ship the materials and you can lead your own. So that's cool. If they wanted to have time to embroider a block, they can go online under support, embroider a block. We'll mail it to you. You embroider it within a month, ship it back to us. They can donate fabric, sewing machines, scissors, any old sewing notions that they may have. Um, cause it all gets, it's always, it's a consistent need because we're consistently giving it out. Um, mm-hmm. and then always monetary donations to help cover postage, to help cover shipping quilts to shows, to help cover, you know, buying backs and batting and thread and those type of things. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, was there anything else that you wanted to share, to share with us? If anything, follow the Instagram so you can see, you know, if it's ever coming to a place near you. We currently have an exhibit in Richmond, California. We're going to be in Massachusetts for some exhibits soon. And then in Paducah, Kentucky, we have an exhibit coming up in Ohio. So there's lots of places where, you know, people could possibly see the art for themselves. Yeah, I am I mean, we'll definitely have lots of pictures and stuff on the, the show notes, but I would second that recommendation of following on Instagram because I think it's just, that's what I've been doing for the last sort of year, you know, of just like seeing these quote box and it's a constant reminder of like, fuck, this is amazing work and this is really important and I really want to talk to this person right? this is really, really cool and really amazing to see. I don't think I realized at first that it was like kids making these All blocks. kids. And I think the real thing is, is like a lot of times in adulthood, you spend a lot of time unlearning things you were taught in childhood. As you, mm-hmm. as you get older, it's like c- color within the lines. And that's just say you can color without the lines. Seam rippers, we never start sewing classes with. Seam rippers are your best friend. There's no such thing as mistakes and there's no such thing as a wrong design. There's no such thing as, you know, we don't have compl- complementary color wheels. It's not about color theory. It's about whatever looks good to you. Expressing yourself yeah. with whatever, however you see fit. It's really like sewing with no limits. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. No, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, it's awesome to have you here.